Hey, this is Kent Clothier, and I am your host of the Time Is Now podcast. If you're looking to improve your business, improve your life, went raw, uncut, and uncensored, you're in the right place. Let's do this. Hey guys, it's Kent. Um, excited here today because I have a very, very special guest, my uh, business partner, as well as one of my best friends, a guy by the name of Roland Frazier. He is highly respected uh, across multiple industries and for a lot of reasons. But what I want to talk today about very specifically is Roland has become a master throughout his career of navigating the mergers and acquisitions and buying of businesses, selling of businesses, of scaling businesses, which is something near and dear to my heart. And as I continue to get more and more questions uh, about you know, potentially exiting a business or potentially acquiring a business, I thought no better time than now than to have him come in. Let's spend some time together. Let's try to, uh, to talk about some of the... Um, you know, the things that are out there, man, some of the, some of the common questions people have. And so with that, man, welcome. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I'm glad you made it here. I know the drive was, you know, it's a, it was a hell of a drive getting here. It's uh, it's uh, he's giving me a hard time because he says that every time he comes to see me too. <laughs> it, you could literally probably, I mean, if you were to fly, it would, it's, it might be seven miles, it might right? be, yeah. but it's a 45 minute It is a drive. 45 minute. Yeah, it <laughs> exactly. is. It's always 45 minutes. And I seem to be the one making that drive a hell of a lot more than you are. So I the really one day you're making it for that. me, I'm really, not listening to any of your bullshit. Really appreciate that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so let's, let's talk about this, right? So you spend a great deal of time, as I said, in the, in the, in the business of buying and selling businesses, of acquiring businesses, and just as importantly, helping others navigate that. Mm-hmm. And as I have gotten a lot more into this uh, over the last few years – in my own business and then in, in businesses with you, I, I'm, I'm running into more and more people that, quite frankly, one of the most common things I hear is that, um, you know, I've got a good cash flow business. I've got a good thing going. I've got, you know, I'm making a million dollars a year. I'm making half a million dollars a year. I've done it consistently for the last few years. Why would I ever even consider selling my business, right? So let's just, I think that's a, as good a place as any to kind of just jump off? Why, why, would, why would somebody want to sell their business? I think it's a great question. The, um, really, there's so many things that can happen in a business would be the first thing I would say is that um, we tend to think that things will always go the way that they have always gone. Uh, and yet we have these events like pandemics yeah. or, uh, or disability or death or health challenges or, or recessions, right? And, exactly. Mean, yeah. So there's so many things that can um, and even the evolution of technology, where entire businesses can be completely disrupted, right? Oh, so, yeah. good point. I, I think that the that the first thing is simply as a hedge against the unknown is is kind of an interesting thing to think about. Now, the the big benefit that I see though is that when you sell a business, you're paid generally on a multiple of profits or a multiple of revenue, and so the day that you sell the business you are going to receive a multiple of the normal profit or revenue that you would otherwise get. And so let's say that you're able to sell for a multiple of 10 times. Um, Well, if you're able to sell for a multiple of 10 times, that means you just received 10 years of profits of what you would have received. You could have waited 10 years to receive that, or you could have it today. And gone through all the brain damage of making that happen. And the risk. Right. Right. 
Um, so, uh, so to me, the the risk is the least is is the uh, least important reason for me when I'm exiting. The most important reason is that I don't know of a faster way to build exponential generational wealth than to have multiple exits. Because if I'm selling now on average one business every quarter and I'm getting a multiple of let's just say 10 on average, because that's a pretty fair average, that means that every year I'm getting 40 years of profits. So after 10 years, I can either have 400 years, four centuries of profits, or I could still have my business and I've earned 10 years of income. Right. That's pretty huge. It's, I mean, pretty huge. I mean, it's astronomical, right? When you think about it like that. And I think what's even worth at least acknowledging is that the most valuable your dollar will ever be is today. Right. And so if I can take 10 years off the table and get it today to have it working for you right now, I have the ability to go make that money work for me. Right. Right. Exactly. It is valuable today. If I'm waiting 10 years, then that dollar is only declining in value over the course of that period. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that's like, that's the biggest thing is um, that if you're holding on to your business for your kids, another thing I hear a lot, um, they don't want it. They don't want it. They want to be Instagram stars. They want to be influencers. They've got their own dreams and hopes and, um, and only, I think the research I saw was only about 2% of businesses typically successfully pass generationally because the kids don't want it. They're not qualified. They don't know, you know, it wasn't their dream. they want to do their own dream. thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Don't force your dream off on them. It's like trying to make them a, you know, a football player because that's what you wanted in high school. And right. You never got to do it. You know, right. it's, exactly. it's, it's just sad. So, um, <laughs> but the main thing is, is that, um, you will be freed up to do whatever you want to do. And um, you'll be able to really compound the amount of profits that you get. And uh, that, that when I got that, I was like, I'm always in this to sell this business. Right. There, that, that's, that's my goal. Now, if you have like no other ideas, no other hopes or dreams, and this is your baby and you want to stick with it, then you shouldn't sell. But if you're thinking about it from a pure play of finance if you're thinking about it from the fastest way to build wealth, if you're thinking about it um, from the fastest way to get the largest return on what you do, and if you have any idea of what else you might want to do with the money or what else you might want to do with your life, then it's kind of crazy not to. So, you know, I know you run into it. I run into it as well. There's a lot of fear of disbelief that somebody would actually buy my business. Yep. Right? So talk for a second about the people, the companies, the organizations that buy these businesses and pay that multiple, right? Like, yep. like, because it's a huge world out there. We only know what we know. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's really important because when I talk to people, you know, they get trapped in their own dogma, their own head thinking, well, I, I can't imagine somebody would actually do this, but the yep. reality of it is it happens every, it happens every day. It does. Yeah. And what's interesting is the growth of even, so there's several different classes of potential buyer. There are strategic buyers who are buying to, fill some gap in their business. Your business is good at lead generation or has an audience that somebody wants that would enable them to sell more of their products or services. Or um, it's a status buy because um, your thing is going to be the crown jewel because you have the largest company that does X and they want to own that company. Um, Those are typically corporate buyers that are doing that. Um, So you've got corporations. That's one class of buyer. Um, You've got companies that simply exist to buy other companies because it's very profitable to buy and sell. 
and those are called generally private equity funds um, or PE. You also have uh, public companies that are set up specifically to buy and take companies public. That would uh, take private companies public. Those are right now called SPACs. Over the years, they've been called lots of things, blind pools, S18 companies, um, special purpose acquisition uh, companies is what a SPAC stands for. Then there are now a, a lot more family offices that are getting in acquiring. And family offices are great acquirers because they're not so much buying to uh, acquire and flip like a private equity company. They're generally long-term hold. Um, they want management <coughs> to stay in place and um, and they're going to be there with you to, to grow. They're going to be probably a little bit more forgiving if things don't go exactly the way that you hope they would. Whereas- so they're buying because they, they, they have a responsibility to deploy capital on behalf of the family. Correct. And create some kind of return. Yes. And so they're looking more along the lines of trying to protect wealth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's wealth preservation is their yeah. primary goal. Let's not lose money. Yeah, let's not lose um, money. But also they're long-term investors. Like they're not looking to, they're not really trading companies, whereas private equity is in it typically for six, seven years and then they're out, right? So let, let's talk about that because I, to, to me that's that's fascinating. And, and I think it's important to understand that, uh, and I'll let you get into it, but the, but the bottom line, a private equity company, at least in part, their business model is that they are trying to acquire companies and typically a portfolio of companies right. and the, the cumulative effort of putting the, all those companies together, the, the, the hole that they have created or the sum of what they created is now more valuable, not just because of the revenue they've created, but because they've been able to actually change the multiple. Yeah. Right. So if I'm able to buy something at a six, but suddenly because I'm able to package it up there, now I can trade it and sell it at a 10, yep. right? So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of the the environment of acquisitions goes from the least appealing company, which has the most risk, is an owner-operated company. So if you're working in your company and you have to show up, you have a job. We talk about this talk a lot. About it all the time. You can't leave the company Hustler for six months die, or a year. Right? Yeah. You actually turn it into a business. Exactly. Yeah. Then that owner-operated company across all industries, and, and there are lots of different multiples, but across all industries right now, those companies command about a two and a half times profit uh, multiple. So if you're making a million dollars a year in profit, you're going to sell that business for two and a half million. If you are in a business that is professionally managed where you have replaced yourself, you've put in systems um, and um, and you're typically around 10 million or less in sales, 2 million in profit or less, profit there we call EBITDA, um, that's going to sell on average across all industries for somewhere between 3.7 and 4.5 times. So instantly going from owner-operated to professionalized so that you not only get your life back, but your value of your company is going to go up by a factor of about two times profit. Okay. Now, when you get into private equity, those companies that are over 10 million in sales and over about 2 million in profit typically will be bought by private equity across all industries for 15.4 times profits. So thinking about just getting the company higher in its profitability and its sales can get a different class of buyer. Wild. Right? Now, why why would they do that? Well, they're typically looking to add multiple companies to that, and ultimately, many of them want to either flip out to a company that's going to take it public or they're going to take it public themselves. And companies that are trading on the NASDAQ right now are trading at about 27 times 
earnings, right? So, so all along the way, everybody can make money. If you're an owner operator and you sell, you're going to get 2.5 times, let's say across now some, and again, different industries oh, yeah, come yeah. in different, but, but these, um, these deltas between what you get do stay about the same. Okay. So you can get 2.5 owner operator. You professionalize your business. You got a factor of two. You're now you're at 4.5. You flip that out to private equity or private equity <laughs> buys your company at that multiple. And then they do what is called a platform and tuck in strategy, meaning they'll buy one company that they'll then use to buy other companies in. And that will, they'll smash them together to be, you know, a hundred million dollar company with $10 million in profit. And then it's going to be about a 15.4 that you're going to be able to sell to them because they're going to flip it out. And they're typically looking to make about a six X return on their money over that six, seven, eight year period. Right? So everybody gets to make money. It's just a question of where do you, you know, where do you sit and who are you going to sell to? Because if you're selling as an owner operator and you're only getting two and a half times, whereas you could have professionalized your company built your sales up to 10 million plus your profit up to 2 million and sell to a private equity. That's a factor of six, right? Between that two and a half and 15 Mm -hmm. times. That's pretty significant. Yeah. Because, you know, you and I have worked on some deals where the, where people where where we've had some clients that were looking to exit and through your advising and consulting with them, it quickly became apparent that, based on what you're saying right now, that if they, instead of went on a, of a mode of selling, if they went on a mode of buying yep. and go acquire and effectively roll up some more companies, improve that EBITDA, you know, that suddenly it isn't just, hey, we went from $10 million in EBITDA to $20 million in EBITDA, right? So therefore our company is worth twice as much. It's not that. It's, it is that delta, but then it is the delta on what it is in the actual multiple. Instead of now trading at a six, well, now it's a 15. It's, yeah. it's I mean, this is a lot of money we're talking about here. It, right? it is, it is. And so, so like to give you a couple of examples um, in how that works, and we've got, uh, we've got one that, we're, that you and I are working on right now. Um, we've got another mutual friend that, um, that has a company that, that I was able to get involved in to help um, in this roll-up. Roll-up and tuck-in. Roll-up and platform tuck-in are probably the two most common strategy playbooks that private equity runs. And that is that we acquire one company that we're then going to use to acquire other companies. We call the company we're going to acquire the platform company. They're typically looking for really strong management there that can absorb other companies and a company that can, that the value can be enhanced either by buying competitors and aggregating them together or by buying supporting companies around it, which would be companies that provide the same products and services that the audience of this company might buy or that are up and down the supply and distribution chain. So as an exact company, let me, mm-hmm. let's just give an example. So yep. um, if you were in, for instance, the roof, a, a roofing company, yep. um, a natural complement to that because you're in the home would be something like solar yep. or windows or f- whatever it is. So my it. first acquisition there would be who are our competitors that we might acquire? Because um, if we acquire a competitor that either isn't sophisticated and isn't thinking about what their company is worth or who knows what their company is worth, but let's say they're an owner-operator, which there are a lot of in the roofing oh God, industry, yeah. right? Yeah, um, it's and, the whole industry. And let's say they're doing $10 million in sales and making $3 million in profit. 
well, they're probably only going to sell that company for, uh, what is it? I think that, I think they're selling for about a two, right? So they're making $3 million in profit. They could sell that company for $6 million. Or if we have a bigger company, that's a platform company that's got management and, um, and we acquire that competitor, we're planning on selling to private equity. We'll probably get a 15 multiple. So we're going to buy them at two, knowing that we are going to be able to sell the whole thing for 15. And we're going to pick up that spread of 13 times the 3 million, right? So that gets to be big money pretty quick. The other strategy that they'll typically run is called a roll-up. And so a roll-up is that we're going to acquire really um, a whole bunch of companies that are um, that are maybe competitors and maybe not competitors, right? So what are the categories of acquisitions? They typically fall into seven buckets. Competitors is the first. That's typically the tuck-in platform deal. Roll-ups can go broader. They might just be focused on one competitor, but um, you can acquire competitors, but also you can acquire media. Who's aggregated the attention and eyeballs of my ideal customer? You can acquire um, infrastructure. Hmm. You can acquire, meaning that you're acquiring to get the key people that are running that company that will now become part of this company or uh, to add a functionality like a software development team or a sales team or a rep network or something like that. resources more than you want the revenue. Exactly. Um, You could do it to acquire products or services so that you can have products or services that you'll be able to offer because you have similar audiences. So it increases your lifetime customer value because your people will now buy these things, Right. Um, you can acquire up and down the supply and distribution chain. In roofing, I might want to acquire the manufacturer of the roofing tiles that I'm using or um, any of the other things that are in that. Or maybe I'm a a roofing company, but I want to acquire a chain of retail stores that are remodeling stores because now I'll have the customer flow from those retail stores. Exactly. for my. Or maybe I'll say, look, they've created a really cool hybrid now. We're a roofing company, but there are roofing tiles right now that provide solar energy. Mm -hmm. So let's go acquire the rights to that technology and we can acquire innovation. So it's like all around, or or maybe um, there's uh, a, we do roofing replacements, but there are companies that provide gutter cleaning services and things like that. And our roofing customers might want that. And that's a monthly recurring revenue thing. So I want to acquire um, recurring revenue so that I can increase my profitability, right? right. So, so those are kind of like seven categories of acquisitions that we would look at when we were doing a roll-up. Got it. Got it. And so... The, and the big thing there, <coughs> the big thing there is that you're acquiring, like when we go in and people come to us, like like the folks that that we talked about. Um, and they say, we've talked, maybe they'll even say, we've talked to an investment banker or more often they will have an offer because private equity has all of their interns calling any business that might possibly oh, be yeah, an acquisition. I get, I get these calls and emails every every week. Right. So, um, so maybe they've got an offer. So then they come to you and me and they talk and we say, um, okay, so what does that look like? You know, well, they're offering me two times or five times, which is a good offer for where they are right now. And and one of the strategies is to say, well, rather than letting those guys make all the money by acquiring us for the market value of our tiny company now, what if we act as a platform? Yeah. The, what if I, we that, do yeah, the role? Actually, I want to talk about this. Yeah. Because, I th- because we've actually had this happen now a couple, two or three times. Yeah. And so when somebody does have somebody coming up and they are – 
you know, the, the ball's moving, right? Yeah. This isn't just superfluous nonsense. Yeah. This is actually moving. You know, how important is it? I know my own personal experience, right? And I, and I don't want to speak for you, but I've witnessed this, like where somebody has a real offer and they're excited about it. Yes. And to them, it satisfies all the, but then through a very you know, quick conversation with you, going through some due diligence, suddenly that offer is improving by a factor. Yes. Like not just, you know, incrementally. It is like exponentially. It's, yep. it's going up. Um, I know what you're going to say, but how important is it to work with somebody that actually understands this. Cause I, I, you know, I put it to you this way. Um, you know, I get people all the time talk to me about, uh, I'm trying to scale this business or whatever the case may be. And to me, it's so important to try to work with mentors or coaches or somebody who's actually navigated something before, because sure. it just puts more money in my pocket right? and puts more time in my pocket. And right. so I know that's true here, but I'd love for you to talk about that. Like, this is this could easily be million. We're talking about generational wealth, and you're talking about an exit going from twelve million to twenty five million, or from thirty million to sixty million, or from a yeah. hundred million to two hundred million. This is this is no joke. Like, yeah. how important is it to have the right people at the table? Yeah, I, I, it's it's absolutely critical. And I think the thing that, like, if you think about it, when people try to do this themselves, they're going to get probably a a fairly fair offer. Private equity knows what the companies are worth within a range and very seldom do they come in at the low end. They don't come in at the high end either, but very seldom do they come in at the low end. So um, one of the companies that we sold um, when they approached us with the offer, it was an offer of a multiple of six. Um, We ended up selling at a multiple of 12. Um, that was the highest offer, and it was a sophisticated buyer. It was Blackstone, which is a pretty sophisticated buyer. Um, it was the highest multiple they'd ever paid for a company in that industry because I've been through this a time or two and know all of the trigger points to talk with them about. We would have been fairly compensated at the six, but we literally got twice as much because we knew the process, Well, I, right? I mean, it's the equivalent of walking into battle – with a, I mean, it's like bringing a knife to a gunfight, like 100%. Like, yeah. I mean, this is their job. Yeah. That's, that's what they don't think about. Like when you get an offer from a private equity company, you're going to be dealing with a world-class acquisitions team whose entire job is to negotiate right. deals with people like you. And you've never sold one company. Right. That is kind of insane. So maybe what you do <laughs> is you go and you talk to your accountant and you're like, hey, we got an offer. And they're like, okay, let's go. And you're like, okay, well, how many, how many companies have you sold so far? Accounting person, you know. Well, I've had a couple of people that exited. Were you, like, what role did you play in the process? I gave them the financial statements. Right. Okay, so you have no experience. Okay, let me go to my business attorney. How many companies like this have you sold? Uh, well, I, I sell companies all the time. Great. How many have you sold to private equity companies? How many of you sold to a public company? You know, well, I mean, you know, my, you know, I, not a lot. How many is not a lot? Okay, I never sold one. You know, and, that, and, and by the way, this is not to disparage anybody. Not at all. This it's is just, just the real world. I mean, look, as my business grows, the CPA that was doing my books when I was making a hundred thousand dollars a year is not going to be the C, same CPA when I'm making five million. Right. I mean, we just outgrow our network, and this is no different. And I mean, to use an attorney example, 
you don't want your transactional lawyer to take you to trial because your transactional lawyer is not a trial attorney. You don't want your business attorney doing M&A because they're not an M&A attorney. Right. You don't want your general practitioner doctor that you go to see to when you got a cough to do heart surgery on you because right. they're not a vascular surgeon. Better right? yeah. yeah, so that's, that's the key. Don't bring the knife to the gunfight because it will absolutely cost you. The thing that I see that costs people even more is not thinking about what is the process that I could go through to truly optimize the value of my company. So for, for example, in with the roofing guys that we were talking to, I want to say they were looking at about a $40 million exit. And we take a, a look at the company and we say, if you, if you want to sell right now, and this is what, what we always tell people, if you want to sell right now, I think you can get about $40 million. If you want to do some acquisitions to grow a little bit and you're willing to wait two, three years, I think you can probably sell for $250 million. And that is, you know, so eight times more, right? I think, no, six times more, right? Six times four is 24. Right. Uh, six times more. But think, in this case, there's two partners, right? So let's say that they sell it for $40 million and let's say that there are there's no such thing as taxes. There are. Um, but let's just say that they got to keep all the money. So now they've each got $20 million. And $20 million is great. But $20 million these days... Sure as heck in what it was before 100%. inflation started, you know, ripping yeah, through 100%. everything. Yep. And I don't think it's enough to like retire comfortably and safely if on. You're in your mid thirties or early forties. That's, I mean, maybe if you're in your sixties, you might be able to right, but not right. in your thirties or forties. Right. So, um, so now then look at the difference. If we're at 240 million, you're, you're taking 120 million. I think you're pretty good. Yeah. At 120 million. Yeah, I think that's a game changer. You know? So, so the thing that we're talking about is that we come in and effectively do what private equity is going to do for you so that the six times that they're trying to make on their money, we make in advance. Now, they can still make it because they're still going to run their playbook. They're still going to find a much bigger company. And then you kind of get out of out of really the zone that's our sweet spot. When you're getting into uh, $250 to billion-dollar companies, that's a different group of people that you're playing with at a different level. Um, you're probably dealing with public companies uh, or very, very large private companies, and it's a different group of investment bankers. But we can definitely make the money that the the intermediary private equity companies are doing. The reason that they've grown from like a few thousand to I think there's over 75,000 private equity companies right oh now. God. Uh, the reason is because it's so ridiculously profitable. What I like doing is – kind of democratizing the process and taking it away from a few elite private equity hedge fund Wall Street people and saying, what if the entrepreneur gets to make that money? Yeah. What if you get to make that money? And so we work with people to put that together and make that happen. Now, there's still buyers. There's still public companies. There's still giant other companies. It's just that rather than letting somebody else come in and take all that. Well, it's always a bigger fish, right? Effectively what's happening. Always a bigger fish. It's just where you are in the food chain. 100%. And, and either you can be the minnow. Yes. Or you can move up the food chain a little bit yeah. and decide that, you know, which one. And clearly, the further up the food chain you're moving, moving the more money you're going to make. Yeah, I mean, that's, 100%. I, and so, um, but one thing, I've, you know, as, as we've done these and, and, we've, and we've shared these stories together, it got me thinking um, because you said something about the taxes, right? And I think it's really important that um, the, che- the big checks – are clearly a huge part of this. 
But I would argue, because I've witnessed it with you, what's equally as important is the right structure. Right. Because I have watched people make the exit without good guidance and suddenly had a tax liability that was completely avoidable Mm -hmm. if they had just had the right guidance prior to the deal closing. Yes. So talk about that for a minute. I mean, it's because it's real. I mean, it, it can be the... You can get 10, 15, 20% chopped right off the top just by because you didn't have a one hour consulting call. Yeah, the the there are two things that I think are really critical that that um that are often unaddressed. One is the tax side, which can cost you typically up to thirty percent. So think about that if we're exiting at a hundred million dollars and you pay thirty million dollars too much. Right. That I'm gonna feel pretty bad about yeah, that. Yeah, that's a that's a big pill to swallow. And uh and like one of the transactions that we're doing right now is kind of interesting that the taxes become a negotiating point. So in two different offers, and this was uh, this is uh, some people that you and I are both working with, two different offers come in. One of the offers is uh, around seventeen million. One of the offers is around twelve million. Seventeen million dollar offer has been done by a very experienced M and A team that is using all the tricks, right? And I don't mean that in a bad way, like using all the strategies. Right. And so their offer is, well, the reason you should take us is that we're so many millions of dollars more than this other company. And we go in and we look at the offer and it's like, well, part of the offer is based on what we call the second bite of the apple, that you're going to let us continue to own part of the company and then hopefully you're going to sell it, and then we're going to get paid then. But we don't know that we're going to get that money, uh, and we don't know that um, that you're going to be able to sell it, right? Right. Um, so that kind of affects it. But then the other part of the offer was uh, $1.8 million of tax benefits because this buyer said, we're willing to structure this as a stock sale instead of an asset sale. So in a stock sale... You typically will um, you typically pay capital gains taxes, mm-hmm. which, depending on how you hold the company, can be significantly better than ordinary income taxes. Totally. And so, what they were saying is, this one point eight million is the advantage to doing the deal the way we're willing to do it. Now, most companies don't want to do a stock purchase as a buyer because they won't get to capitalize the assets and write them off over time. They're stuck with the stock, right? right? But because this company happens to be in the business of flipping, they're thinking, that eh, doesn't really matter to us. And if that can make them effectively feel like they're adding $1.8 million to the, you know, to the price, then that's good. But then we do our tax analysis and it's, and we find that there's a case that came down actually just very recently um, where the tax court overruled the Internal Revenue Service and said, if you structure your asset sale uh, like this, it can be long-term capital gains even though it would otherwise ordinarily be short-term, huh. which means that it's ordinary income. So, uh, so there's precedence now. So there's precedent, right? And the IRS is like, we're not following that, but the tax court's like, screw you, you are. Uh, so the IRS will do that for maybe another couple cases until they get their butts kicked a couple times. And then, right. but, um, but that's really interesting because now we can go back and say, and we did, and we said, thank you so much for doing that. Really appreciate that. Um, we're okay with the asset sale, so let's just add that onto the cash. Right now, that's almost two million dollars of extra value that we're able to get because we know 
how to structure from a tax standpoint, right? right? And there's maybe 30 different ways to structure around those kinds of things. But by the way, if we didn't do each of the seven things that you have to do to qualify for that, exactly right, put that into the definitive purchase agreement, put it into the LOI, structure the deal that way and have all of the forms that you have to file agreed on by both parties, even though it's an asset sale, we wouldn't get that treatment. Right. So like that's a very critical component. The second part would be, and, and a lot of that has to do with how not only the company is structured, but how the deal and the documentation is structured. The second thing um, there would be a lot of people don't realize that these buyers only want a very specific thing from the company. Most of them, particularly private equity, only want the revenue and profit. But there may be very valuable assets that are in the company that can be valuable on a continuing basis or have independent value above and beyond what the income of this particular thing the company has to sell is. Uh, uh, The (coughs) easiest example would be in uh, an event that we sold. So all that the buyer wanted, the buyer was an events company. All they wanted was an event and they wanted to be able to have the sales of the event and the profitability that event made. So we could have sold the whole company that included a media company that generated leads that ultimately got sold courses and things like that, but also that filled the event, uh, the event company that we owned that ran the event, uh, that also runs events for other people, the, um, uh, the intellectual property around all of the other things that were being done. And, um, uh, and that, just those things would have all gone into the pot and we would have only been paid based on the income of the event and the profitability of the event. So what we did when we got approached was we spun the event off as a separate entity. The only thing that, that the buyer ultimately cared to buy was the trademark for the name of the event, the website for the event and the prior recordings and, um, uh, the prior recordings basically of yeah. the event and the, and, and that was it. And so we spun those assets off into a separate company and that's what we sold. Now we held on to another company that's currently picking up offers about $40 million for sale. We held on to our event company that runs events for other people and generates. You held on to the marketing, you yeah. held on to the servicing, the fulfillment, the staff, right. the intellectual property, all of the momentum. And that to me is really magic. It, it's it it I got it. Uh, it really came home to me where I live. There's a lot of people that have sold their companies, and you know they're they're uh, you know you'll play bocce ball or drink a glass of wine or something like that with them, and they're talking about how bored they are because they sold their company ten years ago, and it's so hard to get started again because you know it's like that th- that you've sold everything and now you're kind of starting from scratch. Now you can buy another company, which is great, uh, but to start a company. It's a lot of lift, yeah, right? Yeah. So what if instead of having to do all that lift, you sold the thing that these people want, you didn't give them all the other things that they would probably let go. And I watched this happen. So if we had sold the whole thing, they would have let all the people go. They would have um, not used the IP that wasn't directly related to the event because that's not their business. They would have stopped selling all the courses because that's not their business. 
and all of those other all assets. Those assets that are worth tens of millions of dollars in your hands would have been worth zero in theirs. Right. And they didn't care. Right. They don't care. Like that's the big thing is so knowing how to thin slice the company into the profit centers that uh, or the value centers that the buyer doesn't care about in advance is huge because if you do that, then you don't have to negotiate with them about cutting all that other stuff out and they're not getting something that they don't care about anyway. And now you've got multiple things that either have independent value to sell, which they did in our case, or even if they didn't have independent value to sell, they are a uh, fire hose of leads or products or IP that can be focused at other things to launch those companies even faster, right? And that means that you can use those to grow company after company after company. So I call that the goose and egg strategy is that let's sell the eggs, but let's always keep the geese that are helping us to birth these companies. Then we never lose our momentum and we're never the the people that I'm playing bocce ball with that are like, ah, it's just so much work to do that again. It's like, what if you didn't lose your momentum, but you got your payday and then you got another payday and another payday and another payday. And so like, I'm just trying to think of it like in, in, you know, a company like REI nation where it owns the property management company, right? It owns, it has an acquisition it's not a separate entity, but an acquisition arm, a marketing arm, um, like I just said, property management, a rehab arm. Literally what you're saying is that in the right hands and under the right circumstances, it's not uh, it's not far-fetched to believe that each one of those things has a value. And some acquirer may come in and just say, you know what we really want? We're trying to grow our property management company. We manage 100,000 properties. We want to grow our company by 8 percent this year right we just grow it by bringing your portfolio and and but that doesn't mean that the other stuff if it was carved out correctly is still super valuable not only do they not care about it they literally do not value it and when i say value there i don't mean in a in a uh, philosophical fulfillment way there is no value assigned to it so why would you get under it those it? circumstances right yeah. and they're under in that and so that's the point of of, of having somebody who is is who's been been in the trenches, who understands that that's even a real possibility, quite frankly, because right. most wouldn't. You know, I just think about it. And again, I mean, it doesn't make you a good uh, a good business person or a bad business person. It just makes you somebody who doesn't have experience in buying and selling businesses. It's not what you do. Yeah. And so if you don't know, you don't know what you don't know. And right. hey, somebody's willing to give me $200 million for my business. But what they really wanted was this portfolio right. sitting over here. They don't really care. I mean, how we got there, they don't care. What they really wanted was this thing over Correct. here. That, that it gives you the, the opportunity to have multiple bites at the apple. It does, and multiple exits, which is really what happens. So one of the companies that I acquired, we've had four exits so far. We've got another five to go. Uh, that could have been one exit, right? It's wild. Yeah. That's wild. So it's literally what is true going up is also true coming down, meaning yes. you know, rolling them up, hey, they're worth more as you roll them up, but equally in the right hands, as you're unwinding them, they could be worth infinitely more if you break them apart and value them independently. Yeah. And then you get into the ultimate Frankenstein puzzle, which is that you can take parts that weren't valued here and parts that weren't valued here and put them together and create entire new values as well. Right. It's wild. Well, and it's all the more reason why somebody, again, back to the original point I was trying to make is that, you know, anytime somebody comes into my world, which is happening more and more often as I coach more and more CEOs, as I'm dealing with more and more very high level people, 
these conversations are just naturally happening and inevitably, every, as I've told you, every single one of them, I'm like, you have no business doing this without talking to Roland and, and, and team. Um, and so my exposure to it is, is certainly limited comparatively speaking to you, but I do appreciate the simple value that it is just true. Yeah. At the end of the day, if you don't know what the hell you're doing, you at least, just like in any other business, if I, I don't know how to fly a plane. I can tell you the most valuable person on a plane when I get on there is the damn pilot, right? Yeah. If I go into surgery, the most valuable, like, if you don't know what the hell you're doing, go get the expert. Yeah. I, I, it's also really, it's, it's frustrating and, and unfortunate because I, I do have people that I know who, um, who have been approached. They liked the offer. They felt that they could negotiate it themselves, and they did. And I literally watched them leave. I mean, I, one case I can think of in particular, literally watched them leave about $15 million on the table. And it's just it's just sad because it's so easy. But it was like, no, I know how to do this. I got this. I'm a business person. I'm, you know, Don't let your ego ever get in the way of getting full value for anything. how hard it is got. to make $15 million. Bro. That's hard. Yeah. It's real hard. Yeah. Well, and even if it wasn't hard, every fifteen million helps. Amen. Right. You know. Right. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about let's let's switch gears here for a yep. second because, you know, um, you know, this podcast is going to live on for for many many years. But at the time that we're recording this, we are um, staring in the face um, a recession mm-hmm. potentially. Uh, if you listen to the experts, and we were coming out of out of turbulent times with COVID, et cetera, and you know, you know, I've talked about this a lot, and I know you talk about it a lot outside of our conversations. That that um, there are a lot of businesses to be acquired. There are a lot of business owners that, quite frankly, when they look at times like this, they're like, "Man, I've been doing this for thirty years, and I, I just don't want to do it anymore." And which gives us the opportunity to acquire businesses very creatively, effectively coming into deals where very little outlay, if any. On deals, no, not, no different than real estate, quite frankly. And I know it's something you're passionate about. I'd love for you to talk about why now is the time to really be looking. If you're looking to grow your business, well, now now is the time to, for sure, consider doing it through acquisition. Yeah, I, I think it's a great time because we we haven't in in the bigger deals that you read about in the you know papers and on the blogs and things like that. Um, you're seeing a contraction of value, right? That that you're seeing companies that are doing what we call down rounds. They were unicorns worth a billion dollars. Now the valuation is 600 million or something like that. You're seeing giant companies like Netflix and Meta and things like that that are being really, really hammered on their, uh, on their stock prices. So what that means is that people are scared because it's all a function of risk. And, um, and we don't know what's out there. Everybody's kind of looking around saying, I don't know what's around the corner. Is it a recession? Is it, you know, a little setback? Is it a correction? Um, so it's the best time to think about acquiring because this is the time when everything's on sale. The time when people are uncertain is the time when the multiples are going to be the most favorable to you. And so there are plenty of entrepreneurs who are afraid of what is to come or they've lived through a recession, maybe the 2006, 7, 8, 9, you know, era, and um, they don't want to do that again. It's on the stomach. Yeah. And – we get that a hundred percent. Right. But for those of us who are, who have seen several of those and, um, and see that really the economy is one of the more cyclical things that you'll ever encounter. We know that this is going to be a trough period 
and it's going to lead to another uh, what we call a bull market, right, where things are going up, which they did for about 12 years, I think it was, after mm-hmm. the, the last Great Recession. So, uh, so I think it's a great time to acquire right now because there's a lot of uncertainty, and that means that there will be a lot of value and that there will be competitors of yours who are scared of what is to come, who are not going to lean in, that are not going to move through their fear. And you can actually help them. It's not taking advantage because I believe 100% you should always be ethical in your acquisitions. Don't take advantage of people. But when you're giving them what they want, if somebody wants out, there is a price, just like in real estate. If you want to sell your house today, and it's got to be today, you're going to get less for it than if you could go through a process, have lots of buyers, hopefully create an auction environment. It's the same thing with companies. If you're panicking and you need to sell today or you're worried or you've got some other thing you want to do, there's all kinds of reasons people are motivated sellers, then you are doing them a service by helping them exit, which is what they want, and they are doing a service to you by giving you a favorable price because they know that's what it takes to exit. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it's two things there to me. It's one, don't feel like you're being predatory because you're actually helping them get what they well, want. It's the same thing in houses. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people, you know, people on the outside all the time, like, oh my God, you're taking advantage of somebody and they're trying to, no, bottom line, I can't buy what's not for sale. Right. Right. Period. Yeah. I mean, nobody's putting a gun to anybody's head. Right. If somebody needs to sell a house or any property for that matter, and they're in some level of distress, I'm a guy that can solve that problem. Right. And the same thing in businesses. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not forcing anybody to sell. If you want to sell, I'm a great option because right. I know what to do with it. Yeah. And so, yeah, I get that. Um, my question to, to you would be, you know, how do you approach companies or competitors and, and, figure out if there is any interest. I mean, is it the same as real estate? You just start having conversations? Yeah, it's all conversations. And so (coughs) you can have a systematized outreach just like you do with real estate. So you can use services that list businesses like Zoom Info and and, uh, Hoover's and things like that to find out what's my acquisition criteria, what am I looking for, get me a list that I build of those people, create an outbound uh, email direct marketing campaign, and uh, start approaching those people. The best approach is always, I think, um, to uh, to either be direct and say, hey, I own a company that does this. I'm looking for companies that, that are in this revenue and profitability range that also do that or that do whatever it is that you're looking for. Um, have you ever considered selling? If so, I'm interested in having a conversation. That's the direct approach. The indirect approach would be, um, hey, uh, I'm an investor who invests in companies in the industry that you're in. Uh, I'm always looking for opportunities uh, to invest or even acquire companies so that you're kind of giving both of those. And um, and then that creates a conversation that ultimately can potentially lead to an acquisition. So if somebody is looking to acquire a company, and I know this is a very general question, but I want to ask it is, is do you suggest that somebody is trying to, let me say it a different way. If somebody was going to, they want to, they want to scale, they want to grow, and they are being advised that probably one of the easiest way to do that is to buy competitors or complementary services companies, et cetera. Yeah. Do you suggest that they do that and work with guys like yourself or others from the very beginning because they are they they're basically starting with the end in mind, like hey. Roland, what is the right companies you would suggest that I acquire yeah. so that I'm putting myself in the best position to create an exit? Right. You know what I'm saying? You understand yeah. what I'm saying? Like, 100%. like yeah. 
acquiring for the sake of acquiring doesn't that sounds kind of silly, right? You should do everything with the end in mind, I think, right? And work back from there. So typically, um, not at startup, and um, but but ideally, if we have three to five years before the desired exit event, that is a great time to come in. Three is is tight. Um, if it's you know, if it's much less, so you don't than, need somebody coming at you sixty days. Hey, I'm about to close on this deal. Come on, that would be less optimal. Yeah, <laughs> you, hey, you so would, what, what can you do with this, Roland? But I do get that. I know you do. And I, I will say, one of those deals. <laughs> I say, and, I mean, we're doing one right now, but we're up forty percent in our offer from right, when they came right, to right, us. Right. So you know, which is you know, yeah. again, I mean, millions of dollars. So it always makes sense to have you know to bring the gun to the gunfight or the tank. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but ideally, like in an ideal world. Uh, it, it would be really, really nice. And and what happens very often is that somebody comes to us and says, I'm interested in exiting or I've been approached or I've got an offer. And then we go through it and say, cool, you can take that offer now, help you with that. Or we'd love to come in and help you make an extra $100 million. Let's do this. And now that's probably going to be three to five years from now. Right. And then that's the decision the entrepreneur makes is, right. is that time worth that extra money? I don't know when it's not. Right. I guess I guess if you had a pressing need to get out, right? But uh, but other than that, and you know, and if you did, we might even buy it, <laughs> right? Right. Know? But um, but that that's really the ideal time. So start with the end in mind. Yeah. Go into you know if you're going to go into acquisition mode in the next throughout this year, which we believe you should. And that's yep. exactly what I'm telling people. Is that uh, you know, just don't don't build don't build the house on on a unsteady foundation. Don't go build for the sake of building. Build with some understanding of what ultimately you're trying to create so that it can't, so it's exitable. Yes. And, and, and most people don't know what the buyer wants and don't understand why the buyer might want what they want. This is my point. This is the reason yeah. I'm asking the questions because exactly. I, you know, I think most people, number one, they're not in acquisition. Really. Sure. Hopefully this conversation is spurring that thought like, oh my God, I never right. thought of that. But number two, I think it immediately brings up the next question is, okay, so I run a construction business. What companies should I go and look at acquiring? Right. Well, I mean, there's all kinds of businesses right. that naturally complement that. Um, do they add more value? Do they take away value? You know, if you go and add, um, you know, uh, a software component to what you're doing, you know, an estimating software business to it, or I know that that creates a different a different multiple than if you're just going and com- acquiring your competitor. Correct. Right? Um, Going out in a financial services side of your business creates a different, I mean, correct. those are why I'm, I'm encouraging people to have the conversations with, guy, with with you because what people don't understand, and you know what, let's, let's talk about this for a second because we kind of touched on it earlier. Mm-hmm. Not all businesses are created equal in the eyes of the buyer. Right. Right. And so um, you touched on it earlier. Every business, let's just call it sector, kind of starts with some standardized known multiple based off of based off of prior sales Comps, prior sales just like Comps, an appraisal just like on a house. real estate right yep. this is what we know to be true yep. and we definitely know that there are companies or we know certain sectors get much higher multiples than others so talk about that for a minute for like a real estate company versus a software company versus a financial services company so um the the first thing would be that those multiples are influenced by the market in terms of what is hot. So you'll find that there are things that come in favor and things that go out of favor. So makes sense. Uh, that's and and it's it's kind of like if you've ever noticed that if a Robin Hood movie comes out, 
five Robin Hood movies come out. Oh yeah. If it, like it, it's like superhero movies for ten years, that's all right. you saw, right? Yeah. It, yeah. So it's all in of this, vogue. It's in vogue. The studios all like it. They're all trying not to be outcompeted by the others. They don't want to miss out. There's FOMO going on. It's the same with investment banking. It's the same in private equity. So um, if solar companies are in vogue, everybody wants a solar company. Supply and demand says now 5,000 private equity companies are bidding into solar and those prices are going to go up. Then they're like, solar is bad. Oh, okay, well, we're not interested in that anymore. And now nobody wants solar. You know, it's, it's, it's very funny to watch that it's like the, the values are somewhat arbitrary in that. Um, and then we look at comps so we can look at what people paid or didn't pay. And then within each company, within each uh, of those sectors, you, you mentioned three you said, I think, fintech and SaaS and what was the other real one? Real estate. And real estate. Okay. So You may um, not know them off the top of your head, but I do know they're all different. Yeah. So SaaS is really uh, coming down right now because it was one of those super sweet, super hot um, uh, sectors. And they were selling based on a multiple of annual recurring revenue, not profit. They could be unprofitable wow. and sell for a multiple of revenue. Think about that. And so one of our friends sold uh, or cashed out at a value of 25 times their annual revenue, got a $2 billion valuation, and uh, it didn't even matter if it was profitable. Okay. So I'm doing $50 million a year, and I get 25 times. That's at $1.25 billion, and that $50 million, even if I'm making zero, they're valuing my company at 1.25. That's what they were. They're not now. Right? <coughs> Kind of interesting. So now that is uh, we've we are looking at a potentially recessionary time. Uh, some of the companies that were buying aggressively like that have had huge losses. Um, the world is reevaluating the sanity. It must be the Silicon Valley thing where he's like, "What does he say?" He's like, "Revenue." No, we're pre-revenue. Yeah. <laughs> Don't talk to me about revenue. We're, I mean, it's like that dumbass. The funny thing is, is that it used to be more valuable to be pre-revenue than revenue because pre-revenue is like, we can paint this hockey stick pie in the sky. <laughs> but revenue is <laughs> like, well, now we actually know what you can make. So, oh my God. yeah. So don't Crazy. give me revenue. No revenue. But, um, but yeah, so those 25 uh, multiples on ARR now have fallen significantly. And now you need to be profitable and you're probably closer to 10, right? So that's okay. a pretty significant that's drop. Yep. Um, the... Uh, fintech, I haven't looked at recently, but I know that the multiples of fintech were significantly higher. Uh, real estate, you're looking at uh, on REITs and things like that, probably about an 11-ish multiple now. And um, and as real estate prices are now considered to be overvalued because we had lots and lots and lots of up. The run up. All the time that we were going up, everybody in the market's like, we got to have real estate because real estate's going to go up forever. You know, well, I mean, you see companies like Open Door, OfferPad, right? Or, and you uh, see what's happening. Right? Um, Compass. I mean, they're just absolutely getting crushed yeah. in the market right yeah. now because, because they were way overvalued, yeah. right? Right. Why were they overvalued? Because everybody wanted it, right? right. So it's truly just a. Um, I mean, it's so much. Those trendy kinds of investments will definitely go up and down and have wide swings. Well, I guess the point I, I, that I'm, I'm whereas like a garbage company or a home service company or something like that is going to be pretty stable throughout. Predictable uh, time, yeah. It's predict and, and it, it's being predictable valuations in addition right. to predictable. I, I guess where I was going with it is is that the average guy or girl on the street probably doesn't know what, what, what we're talking about right now. Sure. That, that you know, if you if you have a again a real estate company 
and you have created some internal lead management CRM system back office that is the software component is running your business. Um, and you have, you know, you're selling that and, and licensing out to other people. The reality of it is, is the software business itself, quite frankly, has one multiple and the actual real estate. Tra- I mean, it's two different things. Yep. And, and so when you're out there acquiring businesses, understanding that, oh, wow, this has one multiple that, I mean, that for sure goes into the, to the, or should go into the logic of, oh yeah, what I acquire, where I'm looking, right. what complements, what's going to help me improve Correct. what I'm doing. 100%. Right. Just acquiring, oh, I got a construction company. I'm going to go and acquire another construction company. Right. That, what kind of construction company and uh, are they a leader in their field and what's their branding? What's their NPS? How deep is the management uh, bench in that company? You know, there, there's so I'm many commercial. What's they're the quality of earnings? What's yeah. the product mix? Yeah. All of those things go in and not thinking about that is kind of silly because the buyer is going to definitely be hundred percent. I'm, I, I do retail sales. I go door to door. This guy does nothing but deal with institutional type jobs, right? right? I mean, those things, this is my point is just that, that, um, you don't know what you don't know. And, and, and and if you get in, if you're, if you educate yourself a little, a little bit, that's the reason I want to have you on here, right? Because we have these conversations behind closed doors at times is that I think it's so important that people just have the right conversations, like get vulnerable, humble yourself, You've probably worked hard to build an asset. You've probably got a business that's doing well. You're probably still trying to figure out how to move from hustler to CEO, you know, really get it to professional, professionalizing the business. And along that journey, some of the conversations you need to be having are conversations like you and I are having. Yep. Because if I can position my company through acquisition and or I can position my company, um, you know, position my company better through acquisition, but, uh, but position my company to where I can eventually be acquired I want to have those conversations as early as I possibly can. I want to surround myself with the people who have, have the expertise. Yep. And I, I'm, I'm saying from personal experience, I just didn't know what I didn't know. I just, it was not part of my diet. I mean, to me, I, I have no problem admitting this. For, for as long as I've built businesses, it probably wasn't until I came out here to San Diego 10 years ago. And I made a point of you and I, like, I'm coming here for us to get close mm-hmm. that I'd never been around anybody that built a business to sell it. I built the business to make money. Right. Right. Most people, I think most people. That's do. everybody. Yeah. Right. So I, 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 I know that I'm talking to most people. Right. Because like, I just never even thought about that. And right. I had no idea. There's this whole other thing out there that, holy shit, like <laughs> there's businesses that are designed to buy and sell businesses. Right. And if you're going to deal with the big boys, you need to come, come ready to swing for the fences. Yeah. Don't, don't, you know. Don't come in here and just tiptoeing in thinking you're just suddenly going to get a sweetheart deal. It does not work like that. Yeah, it doesn't. (laughs) So um, uh, last thing here, but, but, you know, I'm always fascinated. I'm sure you do the same. I always read the business headlines. I have a question for you. So the, the, I was reading about the JP Morgan just buying this company, the um, student debt company where they got taken they're now suing the girl for $175 million. Have you seen this? Mm-mm. Oh my God. So they buy this company and this girl basically has created a platform that supposedly has, supposedly has 4.3 million users on it where it is students looking for uh, student loans. Okay. Right. And so company's been around for two years. 
They come in and write her a check for $175 million. She's sayonara out the door. After they've been in the business for less than a year, they figure out that $4 million of the accounts were fake. Oh, my goodness. And so now they're coming after and sooner. And in my mind, I'm just like, how does this even happen? And so in your experience, I mean, I've heard all the, the talking heads talk about this, but you know, $175 million to JP Morgan is nothing. Mm-hmm. They're like, it's like 0.011% of, mm-hmm. of and is it just to the, the point you're making earlier that when something's hot, we got to go as fast as we can go and we don't do the diligence. We just go, 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 go. Yeah. And then there's a lot of collateral damage. I mean, is it, it, it even is, at that level, is it that emotional where they just 100% like, yeah, especially at that pride? level. Yeah, think about that too. That that um, it's not their money usually, right? So so it's not their money. They don't want to miss out. They don't want to be laughed at for missing out, and they don't want to get fired for missing out. And they've got pressure from their pension funds and people that are investors in those companies or their bosses or whatever. And it's like, man, we got to get this this social media thing. Isn't Apparently, it, it's going to be a big thing. You know, it's so, so wild. Who's got that? Well, there's this 22 year old. I don't know how old she was. This is 22. I think she was like gal. 24. Yeah, who's who's built this thing in only two years? She's got 4.5 million. You know, we'll buy that. You know, okay. And you get into due diligence. You know, now you will have reps and warrant representations and warranties she's got to make that would be probably within plus or minus some percentage that there are, no, and just like Elon Musk was having that, yeah, that yeah, yeah. thing with, with Twitter, Twitter. Um, that a certain number of those accounts can be fake and that's okay because that happens, but a certain number when that's exceeded, things happen. That should be built into that agreement. If it's not, then they're going to have to assert fraud that she intentionally misrepresented, which you know might be hard. Right. Well, I, I mean, I think, you know, the, the reason why I find that stuff fascinating is because, um, you know, I'm watching this, this new Netflix special on Bernie Madoff. I don't know if you've seen it. it I is, saw it. It is. At the end of the day, there's always a human being behind the decisions. Right. And the psychology of human beings is just freaking wild. It is. That this dude knew, hey, I want to give you. A hundred million dollars. Nope. Can't give it to me. Yeah. Like he knew by saying no yeah. over and over. Okay. What that happened? one scene where it was, what like, about 150 it's going to have to be 600 million. Yeah. Uh, you know what? If you want to get in, I'm going to, yeah, it, it, I, I, I'll do it for 600 million. And, and it was, they did most of the time, right? It's, and those are the guys that are managing your money. Yeah. So don't do that. Be an entrepreneurial investor. Do this. It's just so crazy <laughs> to me. So I mean, it, it doesn't surprise me, honestly, but, no. it, but a human being is a human being is a human being. At the end of the day, the psychology of what is going on, whether it's pride, whether it's ego, whether whatever it is, and I think pride, ego, and hubris are uh, are right up there in in the investment banking world, about as high as it goes. Yeah, it's it's at the, the top level. It's the ex- I mean, he clearly knew. You know, we, I talk about this all the time: scarcity and exclusivity, and making people the you know driving in the, the intrinsic value, like. Playing into somebody's emotions when it comes to is extremely powerful and helping people understand that what you can do for them. Now, he clearly used it to the, I mean, manipulating people, but. It, it, well, look at HTC. Same, same thing, right? Yeah. It, it's, it's at that level, everybody, crypto to me just generally is a great example. Let's all pile in because it's going to go up forever. I don't want to miss out. You know, my friend just made this. I, they bought Bitcoin at $600 and now it's at $1,200. Yeah, now it's at $10,000. Now out. it's at $20,000. Now it's at $40,000, you know. And you're looking at that. I mean, because I sure did. And I was like, man, I 
don't, I like Buffett's thing. You know, if I don't understand it, I'm not going to invest in it. I don't get that. It has no inherent value. Right. You know, um, and, you know, felt kind of silly that I didn't get some. Oh, I, you know, I, I felt out. the same way. But you know what? Um, I hate losing money more than I like making money. So um, I'm okay with that. We're, we're doing pretty good. I like this business that we do and all the things we've been talking about because it's real. It's based on real numbers, real people, real performance. It's not trendy. It's been around forever. It's going to continue to be around forever. And you can make a heck of a lot of money. Too. Amen, brother. I couldn't have yeah. said any better than that. Man, I appreciate you coming on. This yeah, is, thanks for having this me. This is, is fun. I'll talk about this all day. Yeah, I know you. I literally know you and I can, <laughs> can sit here and doing this all day. And, and we and we should do it more often. Yeah. We actually should do this maybe like once a month or something because I believe that that um, more conversations like this will kind of unlock somebody's potential. Like I'm all about, you know, like I said, the time is now is my motto here, and uh, and waking people up is a big deal to me. I just think there's a lot of people that unknowingly are asleep at the wheel. They're not intentionally doing. It. They just don't understand what the possibilities really are. Whether it's acquiring yeah. businesses w- with very little money or no money or whether it's, you know, rolling up businesses or ultimately even making an exit, but turning that exit into an even bigger and better exit. So I love conversations like this, dude. Thanks for doing this. this. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Peace. We'll see you guys. Hey, it's Kent. Thanks for listening. Just want to invite you to please subscribe to our channels on all major platforms, as well as share this with your friends. And in fact, if you share it on social media, make sure you tag me. It's at Kent Clothier. Love to shout you out. Look forward to talking to you soon.